Well, as a pastor, when you go to conferences or um, places like the Southern Baptist Convention, places where there are a lot of other pastors, one of the questions that you often get in the hallways or the corridors is, uh, how old is the church that you pastor? And uh, I love to answer that question um, by saying, a year older than George Washington's presidency. And they chuckle and they laugh until they see my face and realize that I'm not joking. Um, and then it sinks in and kind of see the wheels start to turn and they, uh, they do the math and they're like, wait, that's over 230 years old. Say, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I love getting to answer that. I love that Poplar Spring has a long and storied history. But if I'm feeling extra snarky that day uh, when they ask that question, how old is the church that you pastor? I might just say about 2,000 years old. Um, sort of a, a church history version of a Jesus juke, right? Um, and even if snarky, it's not completely wrong because what we find is that the account of the early church in the book of Acts is our history. As, as believers in Jesus Christ, this is, this is the history of the church. This is the history of our church. The people mentioned in the book of Acts are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, now, that's not to say that the people of God originated in the first century. We certainly know, you can see the Old Testament and know that God always had a people for himself, a people marked for his possession. Uh, but the book of Acts makes a pivotal turn in redemptive history because it marks the mission of the church. And that's still our mission today. And so in one sense, um, this year-long study through the book of Acts that we're starting today will in some way be a, a historical study, uh, studying our spiritual family, uh, family history for us, if you will. But the, the history that it records in the book of Acts is a relatively short history. It's only about 30 years. Uh, Michael Green, one commentary, wrote this. He said, three crucial decades in history. That's all it took. In the years between AD 33 and AD 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It spread into every corner of the globe, and it has more than 2 billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilizations, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. The seedbed for all of this is that the time that it took to take decisive root was in these three decades. It began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. And so that's what we're studying in the next few months here at Poplar Spring um, are these short 30 years and how God used this time and these people by His Spirit to change the world. And it makes me wonder and, and pray as, as pastor... What may God do through a group of believers today in this room if we got this, if we believe this, if we genuinely were moved along by the Spirit of God? What can He do in Bunn and in Franklin County and Wake County and in places where we live and work through us, through you? And so um, if you're not here for Sunday school, that's okay. We all met together and I, I sort of gave a, an introduction to the book of Acts. Um, that'll be on the website later, so we're not going to go do too much in the, in the way of introductory things. Uh, I want to jump right in. Um, uh, but this bears repeating because it sets up for us the study of Acts. It's written by Dr. Luke, um, and it's his sequel. It's his part two. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he continues his work um, in showing what Jesus did after his resurrection, after his ascension. 
And so that's where we ended last Sunday. If you remember Easter Sunday, uh, chapter 24 um, of Luke, uh, we had a, a firsthand account of the risen Christ. We had all of those eyewitnesses that Luke showed us um, that, that saw and talked with and even touched the risen Christ. We have those records, and Acts begins precisely where the gospel left off, where Luke left his gospel, um, where it ended. In fact, there's even some repetition with the ascension. Uh, Luke chapter 24 describes the ascension, the way that Jesus went up into heaven. And in Acts, you get to the first chapter and you have a repeat. You have a little bit of uh, repetition there. And that's intentional. That's important. Luke's doing it intentionally because he's driving us to an important truth. And it's something that I want to spend some time thinking about this morning. And here's the question that Luke, I think, leaves us with in describing the end of Luke, the ascension, the beginning of Acts, also the ascension, in the same way. How does the ascension of Jesus impact the life of the church? How does does the ascension of Jesus uh, relate to the ministry that Christ has called us to? How does the fact that he's ascended, that he's returned to heaven, impact our our lives and our mission that he's given us? I believe there are some important lessons here for us in these first 11 verses of Acts. So let's read through verses 1 through 11, and then we'll walk back through looking at making some, some points of application for us as a church today. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words that are life to us, that reveal Christ to us. And Spirit, I pray in the next few moments that we have together that you would make it alive for us in each and every heart that you would show us yourself, our mission, our sin. You would convict us and lead us in truth. And Spirit, I admit to you and before these people that I am dependent upon you. I need your help. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, buddy. Regardless of whether you're a glass half empty type of person or a glass half full type of person, It's pretty easy to look around at our culture, look around at our our world today, and get pretty down in the dumps about our situation as a nation and as a world. 
the, the evening news is, is full of violence and, and murders. Uh, social media is full of, uh, it seems like that if you just, just flip to Facebook or, or Twitter or, or any of these, in, Instagram, any of these social media platforms, it seems like everybody it, it hates somebody and they want to tell anybody about that nobody that they hate. It's just, it's just everyone is at everyone's throat all the time. Policies and laws being passed seemingly every day that would contradict um, the priorities that God outlines in his word, the values that, things that he values in his word. It's possible that you could observe all of that in our culture and our world today and become very discouraged about how effective we can actually be, how effective the church can actually be in the world today. How can our Christian witness, how can the mission that he's called us to have any impact on a world when it's so far gone, right? You could get there pretty easily in your mind and in your heart today. But here's why we should not be disheartened. Here's why we have hope. Our first point this morning in the text, our mission is not our own. It's a continuation of Christ's mission. Our mission is not our own. It's a continuation of Jesus's. This is straight from verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He didn't say, I wrote to you about all that Jesus did and taught, like past tense, which he could have, but he didn't. No, he, he begins with what Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is clearly teaching us something. He's showing us something here, even in the first sentence of the book, that the ministry that the apostles had, the ministry of the disciples, the ministry of the early church in Acts, and indeed our ministry today here at Poplar Spring, is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. It didn't end when he went to heaven, when he ascended to be with the Father. And if it's Christ's ministry, it's not going to fail. And if it's Christ's ministry, how can we dare be apathetic about it? As if we don't have to be engaged in it. Uh, and that's how Luke starts. I'm, I'm giving you part two, Theophilus. I want to show you that, um, that, 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 that this story continues. It's not ended when Jesus ascended. That the, the gospel that I wrote to you, the first book that he, as he calls it, is the first three decades of Jesus' ministry. And I'm about to give you the next three decades of Jesus' ministry. That by his spirit, he's going to send forward his servants to take this mission and this news to the world. Now, a common pushback in the history of the, of the church is that Acts is more about the Acts of the Apostles. You may have even heard it called that, or maybe even have called it that yourself. Well, it's certainly easy to see as you study and read through the book of Acts how they are busy. The Apostles are very busy, and they're, they're going and they're talking to everybody about Jesus. They're going all over the place doing incredible signs and wonders and miracles, but they're busy by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. It's his ministry. They're just continuing what he started. It's all about Jesus, and it's through Jesus, and it's all for Jesus. And if you don't believe me, if that just sounds like churchy talk, of the 11 verses we just read, the first 11 verses of this book, all of them, 100% of them, either mention Jesus or contain his words. It's all about him, friends. It's his mission. We're just a part of it. Second point. The second thing that we see in our text this morning is that our mission is not made up it was given to the apostles by Jesus. Our mission's not made up. It was given, us, it given uh, to the apostles by Jesus. So as we continue our text this morning, I want to show us four things, kind of under this second point, kind of sub-points, uh, that were taught here about Jesus' relationship with the apostles. And can I just be a little bit candid and confess to you this morning 
that I get really nervous when I hear churches talk about having an apostle serving with them in their ministry. I just, when I hear that, I think, no, you don't. (laughs) You're just using a word that doesn't mean what you think it means (laughs) because you don't have an apostle with you. And I think our text this morning shows us why that's the case. Luke gives us some very specific observations regarding these apostles. The first one you see is that they were taught by Jesus. They were taught by Jesus. Verse 2 shows us that he taught them. He gave them commands. Verse 3 shows us that in particular he was teaching them about the kingdom. That was the content of his teaching. And if you remember the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 16, Jesus told these disciples, there's some things that you're not, you're not ready for yet, that, I, that I'm not going to share with you because you're not ready to hear it yet. I'll tell you later. And I believe these are some of the things that he's talking with them about in these 40 days. As they're gathered together before he ascends, they're ready now. They've seen the resurrected Christ. It makes sense. They've had that light bulb aha moment, and he's teaching them. He's preparing them for his parting and for their life and ministry and the suffering that they would encounter by being his disciples. So that's the first thing we see. These, these apostles are taught by Jesus. Number two, uh, second thing we see about them is that Jesus is the one who chose them. And continue with me in the text. It says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus chose them. They were not self-appointed. They were, they were not elected by their peers. There was no congregational church vote to vote on them. Um, even the apostle Paul, later on, as you, as you study, Paul makes much of the fact that he was chosen by Christ. He was not, he was not uh, elected as an apostle by the other apostles he was chosen by Christ for this office, for this duty. You see that in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 as he writes the, to the, the, the letter to the Galatians. And this is the nature of being an apostle. They were chosen and taught by Christ. You may hear that and think, well, Matt, you're kind of being a little hard on those, those churches that, that would say they have apostles. If you spiritualize this, then there's nothing that would keep the church down the street from having an apostle, right? Like if, 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 they, if they were chosen by Jesus spiritually, and were taught by Jesus spiritually in his word, couldn't they then be an apostle? We'll look at the third thing we learn about them. The third thing we see is that they could see, hear, and touch Jesus physically. Look at verse 3. And he presented himself, to, uh, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So from the beginning of the church... Even in the early church, this first century church, it was a requirement that an apostle physically saw Jesus alive. They were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. That's why Paul, again, made much of his Damascus Road encounter experience with Jesus, the risen Christ. He saw him. And that physical encounter left him blinded. He saw the risen Christ. That's why John begins uh, his epistle, 1 John, that we have in our Bibles, by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see how important it is to John that they saw him, they touched him, they heard him with their physical eyes, not just spiritually. They were eyewitnesses of Christ. Number four, the fourth thing we learn about these apostles, they were empowered by Jesus. Look at verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, what is this promise from the Father? If you go back to the way that Luke ended his gospel, where we were at last week in chapter 24, 
Luke records Jesus as saying in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise. So there's that language. The promise of the Father uh, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so this promise, whatever it is, is power that comes from the Father to do something extraordinary. And that's what we see through the rest of Acts. As we study this book together, we're going to see that signs and wonders and miracles and healings, that, that those are the things that the Holy Spirit is bringing in power, and it's primarily for the purpose of validating their truth claims about Jesus. Jesus has died and been raised for your sins. Watch this. <laughs> that's what those existed for. So these apostles, in sum, uh, were taught by Jesus. They had physical encounters with Jesus. They were chosen by Jesus, and they were empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. How do these four features that, 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 that Luke would write about and give us information about in the beginning of this book of Acts, how do these four truths that we see about apostles have any bearing on us today? Why does it matter, if you will? Well, friend, as a follower of Jesus today, you are chosen by the same Jesus. You were taught about the same Jesus by these apostles that physically saw and touched and heard him. In your Bibles, that's what you have them for. You learn of this Christ. You're empowered by the same spirit that lived in them. And so as we study each week the rest of Acts, if you wanted to go and do some homework, if you go through the first 13 chapters of Acts, observe how often someone is filled with the spirit of God. I mean, Paul was filled with the spirit. Peter was filled with the spirit. Stephen, filled with the spirit. Barnabas, Filled with the Spirit. The church, filled with the Spirit of God. Friends, the Holy Spirit uniquely gifted these apostles to a particular type of ministry at a particular time in history, but the gift of the Holy Spirit was not a unique gift. If you're born again this morning, you have that same Spirit living inside of you. And I think if we really got this truth, if we really understood that, that the Spirit of God lives inside of us as believers not just in our heads, like, yeah, I believe that, like Sunday school, yeah, that's the right answer. But if we believe that, really believed it in our hearts, we would remove from our vocabulary, from our mouths, uh, things like, oh, well, that's just the way they are, they'll never change. Or, that's just who I am. It's going to be me, that's the way I'll always be. Are you kidding me? You have the Spirit of God living inside of you that desires to form Christ in you. There's nothing that He can't overcome. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and lived in these apostles lives in you. Do you believe he's powerless to change you or your neighbor or your enemy? No, absolutely not. Oswald Sanders says we are filled with the spirit in the same way that we received Christ and were forgiven of sins. We ask for him. We ask for him. So some of you stuck in a rut spiritually, stuck in a place spiritually where you've been for a while. It may be because you've not asked. For him, sought him. God, come and fill me with your spirit. Invigorate my life. Give me a vision and a passion to love you and serve you. Well, if, if you move on in our text, you see uh, our third lesson there, and we'll move quickly, uh, verses 6 through 11. The third thing we see is that our mission isn't conducted however we want. Its method was commanded by Jesus. Our mission isn't conducted however we want. Its method was commanded by Jesus. In verse 6, you're going to see a question that the disciples uh, posed to Jesus. And before we even read the question, though, uh, John Calvin in the 16th century, right, so 1500s, uh, said about this question that they're about to ask, that there are more errors, or there, is, there are as many errors in the question as there are words. <laughs> it's a pretty firm statement about their, about their question. 
But let's read the, the question that they asked Jesus and see if we see the errors. They asked this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will you at this time, all this teaching that you're telling us, all this stuff that's going to happen, is this how you're going to do it? At this time, are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the first error in their question is the verb, restore. Restore. So it shows that they were expecting some sort of political or military kingdom of God, that he would sort of come in and and drop the hammer with, with military strength and force and might and restore, that's the word they used, Israel. Second error in their, in their question was the noun, Israel. It showed that they were expecting some sort of national kingdom, something associated with the nation state of Israel. We can restore to Israel. A third error in their, in their question was the adverbial clause. There's a big, big word for us. At this time. That's what they asked. At this time. It shows that they were expecting an immediate establishment of God's kingdom. That he would come in and do this at this time. So their question is full of errors, and we know this by the way that Jesus answers them. If you continue in verse 7, in regard to at this time, which is what they asked, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Even the Matt James translation here, it's none your business. None your business. Jesus tells him, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know. We tell Desmond this sometimes. Don't worry about it, buddy. You should ask too many questions. It's not for you to worry about. Worry about your mission. Worry about what I've commanded you to do. And let the Father in his sovereign providence take care of the timeline. Let him do that. So in regard to the other two errors, Jesus answers them in verse 8. If you continue in the passage, Jesus says, you think it's going to be some sort of political, military kingdom that's going to be restored? That's the language they used. You've got it all wrong. I'm not going to use you to restore in some sort of military strength. I'm going to use you to be my witnesses. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So in one sense, you will receive power, and there will be some sort of restoration that's going to take place, but it's not the military kind that you're expecting. It's not some kind of dominant uh, brute force that you're expecting and envisioning. It's going to be a spiritual restoration as you go out, not as soldiers with swords, but as witnesses with my word. That's what he's saying. And Jesus says, hey, and another thing, You want me to restore Israel. You want me to restore Israel, but you're thinking too small. If you continue in verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, so Israel. In all Judea, yes. In Samaria, yes, but also to the ends of the earth. Here's what Jesus is saying. Israel is just the beginning. And these nationalistic loyalties that you have, they got to go. You got to get that out of your mind. If, if, you're, if you're only thinking about Israel and your small hometown of, of Israel, of your nation, then you're thinking way too small about my glory and my majesty because I want it to go to the nations so that the nations rejoice in who I am and not just Israel. You're thinking too small. That's what he's telling them. And say, well, what about us? How do, we, how do we apply Jesus' correction here, his rebuke of the disciples to our lives? How does this, how does this make any sense for us as believers today? I think if we're honest, we struggle with the same temptations they do. Now, you may not spend a whole bunch of time thinking about when he's going to return. That was their initial question. Perhaps maybe in our culture we should think more about when he's going to return. But I'd be willing to bet we do have anxiety and we do worry over time and God's timeline and his timing on things. When's it going to happen 
for me? When is that job promotion that I've, I'm, I'm due, that I've worked so hard for, when's that going to happen? When will I find my spouse? When will I have kids? When will I graduate? When will I find a job? When will fill in the blank? Listen to the words of Acts. Listen to Luke. It's not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed. Don't worry about that stuff. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus also speaking on uh, the futility of worrying about time says this, Who of you by worrying can add a single, lot, a de- single hour to his life? Don't worry about it. Je- Jesus is saying worrying about time and when something's going to happen for you is like trying to push water uphill with a rake. It's not going to happen. And not only is it, is it not going to happen, it's causing you harm. It's actually hurting you spending so much time and energy and effort worrying about this. Leave it in your father's more than capable hands. Second, they were expecting a military restoration, and therefore they missed what was to be their point, gospel proclamation, what was to be their mission, the advance of his kingdom. They were expecting military restoration, and perhaps that's not our problem. Maybe ours is the exact opposite. Maybe we expect rest and relaxation. They were expecting to go to war and perhaps even lay down their lives in in, in military strength. And perhaps we're the exact opposite. We expect that when Christ comes, we get to rest and relax like we're on a a cruise ship headed out into the Caribbean for the rest of our our lives and, and eternity. And friends, Christ has redeemed you by his own shed blood. He's called you to be a witness of, of, of his most excellent news, that he's died in the place of sinners. Here's the thing, friends. If you've not been made uncomfortable on account of your profession and in, in, in faith in Christ, then you're doing it wrong. It should make us uncomfortable comfortable when we take a stand for Christ in our workplaces, in our homes, and we get that awkward look or that awkward silence because they don't know how to respond. That's going to happen. If you live obedience to this command, if you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and as you proclaim His excellencies to a lost world, you can expect suffering. But He says, you will be my witnesses. Do we take the claims and commands of Christ seriously? Third, and as far as his correction of these disciples goes, I'd be willing to bet that none of us have nationalistic tendencies when it comes to Israel, right? Why would you? You're not a Jew. But if we're not careful, we can become so fixed on America that our vision is short-sighted just like theirs was. That This is our home. This is where we should be focused. And it's the end of our vision. It's the end of our sight. And so by definition, I keep using that word nationalistic. Nationalism is an ideology that says one's loyalties to their nation state uh, surpasses other individual or group interests. That by definition contradicts what we believe as Christians. It can't be us. That that we're ultimately and primarily citizens of, of heaven and not America. Heaven is our home. America's not. I'm thankful for our country. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have in it. But it's not our final home. And so our loyalties can't ultimately be there, right? If we care more about this earthly kingdom than we do about people entering God's kingdom, then our priorities are all out of whack. And our nationalistic tendencies are the same thing that Jesus rebukes in them. So we need to search our hearts this morning. What are we more passionate about? Number four. Fourth lesson I believe we learn in these first 11 verses is that the motivation for our mission is not conjured up from within. It's compelled by the glory of King Jesus. Motivation for our mission is not conjured up from within. It's compelled by the glory of King Jesus. 
there's a whole lot that you could read on the internet and in books that have been written about strategy, about finances, about programs or plans or discipleship strategies or people, the types of people you need to become or, or have in order to engage this world for the, for the gospel. But more than any of that in the church today, more than any of those strategies or plans or, or, or ideas or philosophies, what the church needs today and what Poplar Spring needs today are people that have a vision of the exalted Christ like the apostles had that totally captivated them and changed everything. Look at, look at the way the text continues. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, he just told them that their whole understanding of their mission and purpose and his ends is completely wrong. And so when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Friends, when you read the rest of Acts, you see bold, death-defying obedience to the command that Jesus gave them in verse 8. You'll take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And at risk of their own lives, that's exactly what happened. And you see Peter, right? You remember Peter. He, he denies Jesus three times in the midst of Jesus' most agonizing suffering. I don't know him. I don't know the guy. I wish you could ask me. I've never seen him. I don't know him. He denies Jesus three times. He goes and locks himself in a room so that he doesn't have to face suffering. That's where Peter was at. How do you get from that Peter to a Peter who, who's standing and pointing a finger in the face of the religious leaders who can kill him, by the way, and then yelling at them, you killed the Son of God. How do you connect those two? Friends, it's because you get a coward who sees the resurrection of Jesus and he becomes a courageous and bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. And that vision of the resurrected Christ changes everything for him. The vision of Christ ascending into heaven and doing exactly what he said he was going to do, it changes his life. It completely captivates his attention. It shook the very foundations of everything he knew. Everything he said that we didn't understand has happened exactly like he said. Friends, that vision of the exalted Christ, the glory of King Jesus, compelled them. Yaroslav Pelikan, a history professor at Yale for decades, said this, that if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. What he's saying is this, Christ risen defines everything. Everything that we believe as Christians, that we base our lives on, that we risk our lives for, it is Christ risen. And that, that changed these disciples. Their attitudes, nothing else mattered. Even my own safety, even my own life, Christ is risen, he's victor over the grave, that must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth at, at all costs. And that's where it took them. And so the question that I began with today, and then I'll leave us with, is this. How does the ascension of Christ impact the mission of the church today? Well, here it is. If Christ is ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's reigning over all, and nothing can stop the God-ordained mission that he's commanded of the church, of you and me. And that compels us to risk our lives for it. That's the good news of the gospel, that it has to get to people. And you see how the glory of Christ, the glory of the ascended Christ, compels us forward on mission. Well, that's not all. Keep reading in, in verse 10, as if we needed more motivation here. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them 
in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, so here's the picture. These angels show up, which is appropriate. When you think about it, the bookends that this gives us, in the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, angels show up in fields in Bethlehem and proclaim the good news that Jesus has come to shepherds. And now, here at the end of his earthly ministry, as he's leaving, heaven, or leaving earth and returning to heaven to be with the Father, they show up again. Perfect. It's perfect, uh, perfect bookends for the, for the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus. And look at what they proclaim. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Don't you know that Jesus, who you just watched go up, he's going to come down in the same way? And that, in other words, here's compelling reason why you should go and, and live your lives for the sake of his kingdom. Get your head out of the clouds, literally, Quit gazing at the skies, get your head out of the clouds, and go live out this mission he gave you. Why? Because he's coming back for you. This is not the last time you're going to see him. And the next time you see him, you want to be in front of him as, as obedient servants. You want to be in front of him as, as one who risked it all and gave it all for his glory. This same king of glory is going to return and bring you to where he is. Friends, that's good news. And that's what moves us into obedience. That's what moves us into faithful action. As the people have gone, we don't, we don't conjure that up inside us. Well, I've got to do harder, or I've got to check the boxes, or I've got to do those things that I know Christians do. No, friends, when you have a vision and when your mind and hearts are captivated by the glory of King Jesus, that happens. It's a natural overflow of, of the love of, of Christ that, that you're experiencing in your heart. It moves the people of God. And so, our mission is His mission. We don't have to make up our mission as a church. We don't have to sit in a room and come together around a table and say, what's our mission going to be? It's given to us. It's his. It's the one he started, that the apostles continued, and that we were handed. We're just the next person in the race to be handed the baton. Run with his mission. We don't have to get creative and make up something. Our mission is given to us through the apostles. They were uniquely gifted by God for a certain task in that day. And as a result, we have the word of God that they have, have passed down to us and given us, and it's the authority through which we do life and ministry. Our mission is done his way. He's given us the method. We don't have to sit and strategize. He's commanded it. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit to do it, and our mission is compelled by his glory. It's his glory. It's a fixation on who he is, what he's accomplished, and the fact that he's coming back. That gives us fire to run the race with endurance that he set before us. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that even in this moment, as your word is proclaimed, convicts, changes, challenges, points out sin, helps us and leads us to repentance. And so, God, in this moment, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who's never trusted you, they would, for the first time, see the risen and exalted Christ. The one who took their sin to the cross and nailed it there in his own, in his own person and his own self, and that the wrath of God was poured out upon on their behalf. And God, I pray that they would be led to repentance. Belief upon you alone, Jesus, for salvation. For those of us in the room that are believers, God, I pray that this understanding of your mission would compel us, that your glory would compel us to obedience. 
We give you this time, Jesus, and as we respond, we pray that you would be honored, that we would be obedient soldiers in our King's army. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning as we respond, one of the ways we get to gaze upon the glory of the resurrected King, one of the ways we get to celebrate his life and death and resurrection is through the the table. That he's given us a sign. He's given us a symbol whereby we can see his broken body and his shed blood that was for us. And so this morning we're going to celebrate around the table together as his people, as his children, and be reminded as we do that we celebrate what he's accomplished on our behalf, and we understand that as a, as a body of believers, as a church that's celebrating this together, it's also that he's sending us out so that others can know of his broken body and his shed blood.